0: Hey everybody! This is Dr. Wynn Clark here for Leadership Conversations. This is a show where we talk about leadership according to the world that matters to you. We, you know, we've made a commitment um, on this show to really expand the conversation about entrepreneurship. And I know that we typically talk about uh, nonprofit uh, non- uh, entrepreneurship, um, but I also wanted to bring in somebody who has a pretty dynamic approach to entrepreneurship. He's uh, he's run a couple of nonprofits and. For profits and has a perspective, I think that's valuable to the conversation. And I'm talking about uh, the only Matt Conway. <laughs> Matt, <laughs> Matt, what's going on? Not too much, man.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, well, I had to have you. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, like you're one of the people that represents kind of um, this philosophy of nonprofit sustainability that I wholeheartedly mm-hmm. believe in. So before we jump too far down the conversation, just introduce yourself, tell you right about yourself and
1: yeah, who's sure. Matt. Yeah, so... Uh... You know, my name's Matt. I, I run an organization called the Rise Up Group, which is a five hundred one c three. But w- one of the things that I've been blessed with, on, on top of uh, having this opportunity to run a nonprofit, is um, a lot of experience in uh, corporate America. So uh, I went to graduated the University of Connecticut in two thousand eleven with a degree in finance, which, uh, really opened up a, a lot of opportunities. The first being a, a leadership development program at GE capital, um, which then led into, uh, more corporate experience at, uh, a healthcare s- startup and, um, most recently in a strategy role at Cigna. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, having the opportunity to work in corporate America has, uh, Helped me a lot from uh, a nonprofit perspective and also running organizations because uh, you learn a lot from other people and observing other people and seeing how very well run and successful organizations operate and right. being able to apply that to your startup is uh, invaluable. You know, it's almost like getting a, an MBA while you're you're getting a paycheck, which um, <laughs> not many people are are able to uh, to say. So yeah. It's uh, put me in a great position to be able to make a huge impact on the community um, while being able to support myself uh, financially.
0: So that's interesting. You know, I do want to just dig into that a little bit. You talked about uh, the role corporate America's played in helping you uh, learn how to run a business. Um, some people will say, you know, you really the – for, the for-profit world, corporate America is so different from the nonprofit world. What did you take away from your corporate experience that has made a difference in how you've approached, you know, the Rise Up Group and all that stuff?
1: Yeah, a lot of it is uh, the process and the organizational structure um, and the discipline that that's in place and the measurable goals that, that are in place uh, in corporate America. You know, there's a lot of... Um, you know, repetitive meetings. There's uh, a certain way to run a meeting. There's a certain way to communicate, a certain way to write an email, a certain way to put a pitch uh, deck together. And being able to put a pitch deck together or sell, you know, somebody on, uh, you know, a multi-million dollar project... Can really help you sell a thousand dollar you know project when it comes to fundraising yeah. or uh, you know being able to communicate with higher level uh, individuals in uh, you know foundations. It, it really helps to to connect those dots.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I I take away from you know my corporate experience kind of the same principles. One of the things I I was pretty clear on, and it wasn't until I got deep I don't want to say deeper in my career, but uh, I was in the nonprofit space for a while, was the fact that I observed there was this lack of professionalism
1: yeah.
0: among nonprofits. And I hate to say it that way, but professionalism from the perspective of, like you said, lack of process, lack of clear organizational structure, lack of discipline, and no focus on outcomes. Of course, nonprofits have come a long way mm-hmm. um, and continue to evolve. But you know, even when I talk with people who are looking to launch a project or a nonprofit – You don't get this sense of professionalism and seriousness Mm -hmm. that comes with the idea of launching a nonprofit. What what comes with it from what I've seen, and tell me how how you see it too, is I see a need, I want to solve it, and nobody else is doing it the way I envision it. You rarely hear conversations about, all right, great, how are you going to finance it? How are you going to structure it? I don't even see you show up on times at Mm. meetings or coffee when we schedule it yet. You want to start a nonprofit. How are you going to hold people accountable? I mean, what's been your observation when you see people say – or you hear people say, rather, I want to start a nonprofit, and you kind of struggle to believe that this is something legitimate?
1: It's a lot of work, you know, (laughs) and I think there's a lot of goodwill out there, and there's a lot of people that can do – do good, um, but it, it takes a lot of like you said the the structure and the basics of being able to show up on time, being able to be be professional that goes a long way. Um, and I think that's where you see you know projects start and finish very very quickly, yeah. and, or. Uh, you know, someone who has great intention of of building this uh, sustainable nonprofit, but it ends up being a one year type of uh, mm. type of initiative. Um, and I, you know, I'm I'm no uh, I'm no different than a lot of a lot of people when it comes to that too, because I, I've gotten into positions or tried doing projects that I've seen a need and I've dove into it, and I'm like, oh, I can do it all, and then I very quickly realized, even if the professionalism's there, the time's not always there to to juggle all these balls in, in the air. Um, and I think uh, the Mama J initiative is a great example of that. Um, so, you know, I saw this need for uh, employment needs in, uh, you know, the food industry, I saw a need for um, grassroots fundraising for other nonprofits in, uh, you know, in the, the Hartford area. And I built a relationship with a coffee shop that also served breakfast in the area. And uh, so I was able to leverage their, you know, surf license and, and all of that. And I, you know, had this vision of growing this uh, kind of breakfast um, fundraising platform into uh, a food truck and all that. And, uh, you know, quickly realize that you may not have time (laughs) to even if all the other pieces are there, you know, time is a big thing that ends up eating into uh, into your day when you're trying to do this mural initiative and you're trying to do this after school tutoring initiative and you have your day job. Um, So I think that's another thing that people kind of take for granted is is time um, and how much time it actually takes to. Uh, you know, make something sustainable. Which you know, I, I do have those sustainable initiatives, but sometimes you get over your your own feet when you're running. So
0: man, so let's let's uh, kind of forward this conversation a bit. I ask this question all the time, and I ask you this: How do you define leadership?
1: So, so there's a big difference between leadership and management, right? And leadership, I think, is being able to define a vision and and get people behind that vision uh, to move forward and accomplish a, a goal, versus management is kind of more your day to day, you know, making sure people are are writing, uh, you know, dotting the I's and and uh, crossing the T's on a on the right way. Uh, but leadership is really developing the vision and getting people behind you and and you know creating change in in a community um, that's bigger than yourself. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And I think, you know, if we were to apply, you know, your your definition of leadership, I think there's a there's a deficit, you know, Mm. Um, in so many communities where there isn't quite a vision in place Mm. that um, has been articulated, let alone that has the response necessary from the right people to kind of push it forward. So with that said, I do want to talk about leadership from the perspective of, you know, launching a project and really, you know, having an entrepreneurial bend to it. So I do wanna ask you this question. Talk about the perspective of someone who is maintaining a job or has maintained a job and has launched a whole separate organization. Talk about the hustle and what goes into balancing both you know, when you were developing Rise Up and you were working your nine to five at the same time?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's, that's really where leadership comes into play, because it's having a, a vision bigger than yourself, you know, like, I, I would be fine working my nine to five, and, you know, working in corporate America and, and kind of doing that hustle. Um, but when, when you see such a, a need um, or a way to improve things in the community, it, it just sets off a fire inside you. Um, and so kind of how, how I started in all this work, uh, I graduated UConn, um, like I mentioned, and I had a job lined up at GE Capital uh, in the fall after graduation. And during that summer, I worked at Weaver High School. So we we had this really awesome uh, summer employment program where we repainted the first and second floor with uh, with a group of about forty students, foreshadowing Handy Vision, you know, five years later. Um, and so one of the biggest gaps that I I recognized during this time frame was, you know, I I went to public school twenty minutes north of Hartford in the suburbs, um, and there was just the lack of basics. Mm -hmm. There, there wasn't a library at Weaver, you know, there, there wasn't support outside this as much support outside the school walls as, you know, you had just because the zip code that you lived in, um, whether it's coaches, family, family, friends, aunts, uncles, you know, you name it. Um, and so I, I saw this kind of deficit and I, wanted to bring that uh, that support to to Hartford and and to Weaver, and so I, I couldn't, you know, I saw, say sell my soul to Corporate America after, you know, spending the summer uh, at Weaver, and I, you know, called up a couple of my buddies, and we ended up uh, starting this, you know, mentoring program, um, and... So fast forward to the uh, the spring of 2012, we did our first kind of presentation to a group of students at Weaver High School um, to talk to them about our mentoring program. And, you know, another huge gap that I recognized in, in this nonprofit industry is the lack of continuity of support to kids. and And so a student raised her hand after we gave our presentation on, you know, here's here's how much more money you make when you're in college, you know, after you graduate college, here's, you know, your career path, you know, your path out of poverty, you name it. And, um, you know, she challenged us a lot. She's like, you know, so are you saying, you know, my friend who's a paraprofessional is, you know, less than any of this. And, you know, we had to kind of back backstep some of our, our comments and listen to her. And then, you know, we came up to her at the afterwards and really started probing why she gave us a, a challenge because we could tell she was a very articulate, very smart girl. And she said, How do I know you guys on another group that's coming in here and six weeks later you're gonna be gone? Mm-hmm. And that impacted us a lot. And um it it really made us think about how we're gonna go forward and and do this work in the community. Um, and it made us much more conscious of, of that work. And, you know, fast forward uh, six years, she's now on our board of directors and is at UConn Law School. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it helped to really, uh, you know, navigate our work and, and again, show the disconnect that there There may be nonprofits who have been here for twenty five years, and I don't want to take away from a lot of the work that they've done, but there's a huge gap in continuity of of support and mm-hmm. so even the work that we started with handy vision uh those were students from that paint program you know back at Weaver that we started handy vision with, and you know I saw that they didn't have that continuity of support after high school, pulled them into you know let's start shoveling snow, let's start raking leaves, let's start mowing lawns. Mm-hmm. And literally we helped provide a, a sustainable path of employment, uh, sustainable skills that they can take on afterwards. Um, and it, it's really just kind of identifying the needs, coming up with a developing a vision and, and being a, amenable to that vision uh, based on what you hear in the community.
0: So for but for the person who is working a regular job, yeah. who um, has a desire, a vision to yep. launch a nonprofit, a special project in their community, how do they effectively balance the hustle of a regular paycheck and launching a passion project?
1: Uh, you know, the Rise Up's uh, kind of slogan, it's on the back of all of our t-shirts, is, is get after it. Mm-hmm. You know, that... In my opinion, that's all it takes. Is just if you have an idea, you you sketch out a plan because you have to have a plan. If you just go and do it, you you're gonna uh, you're not going to accomplish all your goals. Um, but you just get after it and you you just do it. It's it's honestly really not that hard to uh, if you're truly passionate about something to just get after it and do it. So <laughs> you that
0: know? that I agree with, and I think that there's a. A huge opportunity for um folks to just to just do it, but then the question becomes if they desire to take it to the next level, which mm-hmm. the next level is inclusive of funding, yep um perhaps not sustainable funding but funding, mm-hmm. how do they balance that hustle, man,
1: yeah, so just like kind of what started the, the concept of Rise Up, which is, you know, networking. Mm-hmm. You know, the the network of people I had as a teenager, I I was interning at a private equity company my senior year of high school because the owner was in my uncle's wedding, you know, um, and I made that phone call to him and say, hey, I'm interested in finance, and it led down to that path. Um first thing i did when i got to college it was going to all these seminars that companies were holding it was meeting people it was you know introducing yourself it was getting out there and, and i think that's the number one key whether you're in corporate america or you're trying to start your your own hustle it's getting out there and networking because it's everyone else around you that's going to help you find your next job that's going to help you find that next funding source that's going to help consult you or advise you on the ideas you have so you have to Build that strong network around you to to actually be successful.
0: I I don't disagree with you, but then speak to the person who feels like there's nobody that can understand me. There's nobody that's doing what I got in my mind. How do I network with people who uh, will invest or who will buy into what I'm selling?
1: I would push back and say that there is somebody out there. You know, it may not be that exact idea, that exact concept, but. If if you can articulate your idea strong enough and the vision you have for it and the outcomes it's gonna produce, somebody will will listen. Mm So, good
0: point. (laughs) You know, it makes me think back to uh, one of our earliest exchanges, which was uh, the first Emerging Leaders Conference, Mm -hmm. and that conference man you know the the spirit of the conference still lives like in terms of uh why i'm doing it and the 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 the, the necessity of it Mm -hmm. it still lives and i remember um i show up at the event space and it's snowing (laughs) and i'm like oh this is not good um and then you know 20 people show up And it was an interesting experience because I think I had conversations with you leading up to that event during the event where it was just like, okay, you know, is this worth continuing on? And and how do you continue to push this thing down the road? And I think, you know, to your point about networking, you, you got to figure out where, what network makes the most mm-hmm. sense for the continuation and the sustainability of your project. I think for for what ended up happening with the Emerging Leaders Conference, which is coming up May 30th of mm-hmm. 2019. I don't know when this podcast is going to air. Um, it, it's evolved mm-hmm. to the point where after the first year that you were involved and you made me that awesome uh, egg sandwich with honey, dude. <laughs> like, I wasn't even expecting it. What the heck was that? <laughs> like, it was just a gift. Or you just brought me an egg sandwich, and I needed it with the honey. It just made a difference. Um and we headed out of Austin awesome Space in yep. Hartford to the next year. I just was, wasn't even sure I was going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I planned it at the last minute, but I actually did it for my staff at the mm-hmm. time. And then a year after that, I did it with my staff. And then I invited some outsiders who weren't a part of our team or mm-hmm. organization to so this year. I don't even know how many people we, we got registered. I only allotted 50 seats mm-hmm. because. And that's the space we yeah. had. It's like, my budget was like, nah, no more than 50. Yeah, that went just like that. Yeah. And then now I had to open up more seats, and I'm about to shut it down with like four weeks to go. Yeah. So it's interesting how it's evolved. And I think to your point, you got to figure out the lane mm-hmm. where it makes sense. So, I mean, how can people, let's have this conversation, how can people start to, um, identify the right networking lanes that make sense for their project, passion project, their yeah. vision.
1: Well, you, you have to have a a, a track record. You know, that, that needs to happen and every entrepreneur has to work for free for <laughs> for a long time, you know? <laughs> and and a, a good example is like our Hartford Murals project that we do. So we've done over a dozen public art murals in the city of Hartford. And for a long time, they, they were being done at a, at a loss, if you will. So I, I was end up putting in personal money to close the gaps. But I, I believed in what public art can do for the city. I believed in the process we were creating where we were getting, you know hundreds of volunteers out to help create this artwork. Um, and it was quality artwork because we'd also bring in the professional artists to make sure it looked good. Um, to the point where now uh, you know we're being approached by corporations and and multinational organizations to come do murals for them mm-hmm. at, at a at a you know a profit if mm-hmm. you will for for the nonprofit but a profit for the nonprofit where you know we can now allocate programmatic budget back into the the organization, and it's not you know all just going out the door which which is incredible yeah. And that goes back to, I think, you know, one of the conversations you, you've mentioned before is the sustainability part and creating that business model for your, your organization. Um, and that's what we're, we're trying to create is, you know, having a huge impact on the community and also figuring out a way to be sustainable without having to write grants or, you know, ask for donations all the time. Those are still necessary because you're not going to close your your budget gap without it, but finding those other initiatives that can help, you know, bring in funding from a a business standpoint.
0: All right. So I'm going to take I'm going to go down this rabbit (laughs) hole with you for a moment. Right. So you said you got to have a track record and you got to work for free. (laughs) There are people going to watch this podcast and say, I'm doing that and I'm still not getting any burn. I'm not getting any recognition. I'm going to go back to what you said earlier. And I think you and I share this from my corporate experience. I think what people do forget is that, yes, you got to have a track record and you got to work for free, invest back mm-hmm. into the business. A nonprofit is a business. But I think in doing that, the four principles you laid out from what you learned from corporate still has to be active. You got to have and develop a process for how mm-hmm. you run business. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Uh, th- the regular operations of rise up. The nonprofit I'm at, what we do day to day, the processes matter. I think the org structure matters, mm-hmm. The the not necessarily the pecking order, but then the role everybody plays in the organization. Even if you subscribe to a flat organizational structure, the mm-hmm. idea that everybody plays a significant role that makes a difference has to be defined and articulated. Yeah discipline in how you behave not necessarily in like i mean yeah culture and and all that good stuff but then the discipline and how you get stuff done um if funding goes away if all hell breaks loose if Mm. clients don't show up the discipline to stay the course and then getting outcomes which is like it used to be a curse word you know Mm. nonprofits. like what is that yeah. Like, you know, maybe we got outcomes, but I know a good story, right? Yeah, yeah, A yeah. good story doesn't equate to outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and I do want to highlight culture as something um, that doesn't matter. Uh, in a for-profit, non-profit, it doesn't matter. Culture matters. And I think the culture of performance, culture, discipline, culture, a process, it, it makes a unique impact. And all of that factors into why you work for free and invest back into mm-hmm. a profit But then it also... It gives you the drive to build the track record to say, hey, to a funder, maybe two, three, four, five years down the road, man, we went from 20 people on a snowy day, Mm -hmm. then we shrunk it down to 12 people, and then we grew it to 30 people, and now we got 80 people? Yeah. You might want to invest
1: in it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know
0: what I'm saying? Yeah. How do you respond to that?
1: How do I respond as an investor or just that No, just
0: as someone who's- who's hustling like he's yeah you still, still on the rise up on yeah, the come up <laughs> exactly <laughs> like,
1: yeah yeah so it's it's all about the growth you know that that's what yeah. i say if, if you're always improving something you're and always leaving an impact even if it's a handful of people we're we're doing this in the end for the betterment of of other people you know and Bro. you can't forget that and uh as soon as you forget it and it does become uh you know, like a biz like just straight up business profit, you're it's gonna fail. You know, and that, that's Facts. I think it's the incremental growth. It's, you know, recognizing the the handful of people that you may impact out of uh, fifty in a room, um, that really matters. And and even out of that twenty people that were in the room that first event, that was a, a room filled with great conversation. You know, was. everybody was engaged, was. everyone was contributing and if you had a hundred people there, it may not have had that same type of dynamic. So yeah. I think I'm very, you know, uh, optimistic person and can find the the good or the growth in in everything. Um, even if you fail, like that's a learning moment for you. That's yeah. a, a, a reason to grow. And I think as long as you're growing, you're not failing. So um
0: one of the things I remember you saying in the last uh show when we were together was failure is a learning opportunity. I totally subscribe to that. Explain that more for the person who's never heard of that or doesn't believe in that. Who doesn't believe that failure is learning
1: opportunity? Failure is just straight up failure. And to that, you say what? I, you know, I, I don't know failure. It's just kind of a, in my DNA, you know, that failure is a is a growing opportunity because when you, you know, stopping something is is failing. You know, saying I can't is is failing, and. I I guess it was just the way I I was raised was to always just push forward and having that, taking something from every opportunity is, is just the way you got to have your mindset, right? You know, it's comes down to mindset. It comes down to, uh, you know, just the, it's gotta be in your DNA and you can change your, your mindset by being disciplined and you know, I'll take working out as an example. Um, you know, you can literally change the way your body looks by mentally telling your body how you want it to be shaped as you're working out. Like yeah. I had a friend uh, that we used to work out with in college every day. He he wanted like big biceps. And he was a skinny little kid when we first started in, at UConn. And we'd go to the gym every day together. And he literally would talk to his arms. <laughs> And by the time we graduated, he had the biggest arms out of all of our friends. And, you know, I, I take myself as an example, like telling myself what, right when I get into the gym, here's what I want to accomplish and just focusing on that in your mind, you will accomplish that and you will get stronger mm. um, and you can apply that to, to anything, becoming a better reader, becoming a better speaker, becoming, you know, anything Um It's overcoming the fear of of failure uh, and just pushing forward. So I I love what you said. You said failure is quitting. Yeah, you know I'm in the middle of this uh, uh,
0: series at my church. Uh, I'm teaching my congregation um, that to to experience a transformed life according to Scripture begins with a renewed mind. Mm -hmm. And as you articulated, whether it's working out, dieting habits making the decision to go back to school, uh, changing careers, uh, getting into, out of relationships, Mm. and having uh, an experience, a life experience that is transformational begins with the mind. And I think, you know, as I'm like processing what you're saying, because I remember you saying those things three, four years ago Mm. when when the conference happened, and I was just like, I don't know. (laughs) You know, I know it's important. I know it's needed. And you said some of the same things to me it does require a, a mind shift
1: mm-hmm.
0: that um, is difficult to gonna go through. Because uh, even as I rethink about the journey I took to, to, to still do the Merchant Leaders Conference and, you know, how it's supported now, how it's backed now, it's different than mm-hmm. what I expected, different from where I started. And that journey was not overnight at all. So, what words of encouragement, what advice do you have for people who are in a, a moment mm-hmm. and they, in this moment, they feel like, I don't know, man, you know, I don't know about tomorrow in terms of my nonprofit, in terms of their passion project. What do you say to them to kind of encourage them to push forward?
1: I'll, I'll go back to our, our slogan. You got to just get after it. You know, I I'm someone who sees the best in everybody as well. And I, everyone has the strength to overcome every, every obstacle. You know, there, there was a great meme on uh, Facebook that I saw this week and it was a picture of a rose and it was a picture of a dandelion and the rose, it was, you know, the beam above it was uh the soil's not the right pH level i'm going to die and then the dandelion was growing out of concrete and it was just like you know concrete what like i'm going to take over concrete and the person's caption on it was like you know sometimes we think we're roses but we're all actually dandelions you know like we can we can get through a lot of stuff and overcome a lot of obstacles we're we're not as fragile Um, As we may may think we are. And I think it's just, uh, you know, looking internally and, uh, you know, realizing and putting a plan together, writing it down, you know, you you can overcome whatever challenge that that you may be facing and, you know, use your network to to help overcome those challenges as well.
0: Um, start to go down these, uh, these pointed questions, yep. uh, what strategies helped you launch your various ventures? And perhaps it might be a good opportunity to talk about the ventures you have going yeah. on and then talk about the strategies that helped you get off the ground. Yeah.
1: So uh, I think the number one thing is identifying a, a need or a gap and really analyzing how that, uh, you know, what you're trying to develop is going to impact that, that gap or need making sure you have the resources in place to accomplish and fulfill that need Um, and, and kind of stay in your lane too, you know, don't try and solve problems that you can't pull the resources in to, to make happen. Yeah. Um, And leverage your, your network is a, a big thing. So first thing I did with, so a couple of the initiatives we have, you know, the, the core Rise Up, uh, which is Rise Up University, um, which is a mentoring and tutoring program after school where we're, we're really helping kids get up to grade level, identifying post-secondary uh, opportunities after college, whether it's trade school um, or post-secondary uh, opportunities after high school, whether it's trade school or college or military employment, you know. Um, and like I said, one of our, our first students through that program is now at UConn Law School and is back on our board of directors. So uh, another initiative we've started is um, Hartford Murals. So that's the public mural projects that we've done in, in the community. We've done uh, Mama J's, which has, you know, well, it lasted, uh, I'll call it one season. It, it raised thousands of dollars for other nonprofits in the area and helped employ high school kids learning how to cook uh, on the weekends which while it wasn't sustainable necessarily because of the time aspect uh, it did leave its impact Um, one of the more exciting things we've done is uh, Handy Vision which is a landscaping and kind of handyman type company where we were shoveling snow, raking leaves, we had sustainable clientele mowing their lawns Um, again it, it came back to time and, and uh, to continue that on. Uh, and also a, a big project I've been involved in is called Section 7 Real Estate, which is probably our most sustainable financial model, which is providing low-income uh, housing and employment opportunities by supporting the house uh, subsidized through um, kind of more market rate house uh, housing rents. Um, And that's really created a a sustainable platform to create jobs, give families, uh, you know, good homes uh, to live in and also provide folks from who are coming from out of Hartford, a good safe place to, uh, to live. Um, But it it all came down to need, you know, it's, uh, I think the, the platform of any successful community is education, employment. Uh, and housing. And so we've uh, recognized those needs and, and have tried to fill them in uh, different ways.
0: Yeah, so that makes a ton of sense to me. I do want to go back to the four things you mentioned. You mentioned fill the gap, uh, find resources, stay in your lane, and leverage a network. When you talk about filling the gap, uh, you know, you can talk to a number of people in the city mm-hmm. or any city, and they'll say to you, man, nobody's doing X. And one of the things that has challenged me a lot Mm -hmm. is when I hear that, particularly in and around Hartford, when Hartford is a small city compared to where I was born, it's tough for me to accept that. Yeah. Because I run in a number of circles, been fortunate to, you know, be around conversations, see things unfold that has helped the community many times over. And yet there is that one person in every table that says, you know, nobody's doing this. Yeah. How can people accurately pulse what gaps exist? And how can people begin to identify? if there absolutely are no organizations or groups not filling those gaps
1: so as a a young naive individual i was probably saying very similar things and and, you know quickly got kicked off my high horse and it's not necessarily welcome to harford yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know no one's doing x y and z uh, but there's just there needs to be more people doing x y and z and and in, instead of kind of pointing fingers or saying this doesn't exist you know really understanding maybe why something hasn't been sustainable or reaching out and looking at who's already doing this what type of resources do they need to make it even better and and that i think having that lens is where you can really start growing things like we've we've leveraged other organizations or worked with our other organizations to make our programming bigger and better, rather than trying to just duplicating the same thing that, you know, saying a mentoring program doesn't exist in Hartford, there's so many mentoring programs that exist in Hartford, you know, Big Brother, Big Sister, you know, Hartford Communities that Care, I know, has a, a strong mentoring program. And, You know, the list goes on, but how can you work with those organizations to to make it better Mm. Um, or come together for events? And instead of each of you impacting 10 kids through your program, how can you impact 50 kids in that program? So I think it's kind of, you know, not necessarily saying being that person at the table that says this doesn't exist, but looking at it and saying, where else does this Actually exists, and how can we make it bigger and better
0: man, I'm feeling that you know the theme for this year's emerging leaders conference is uh strategic partnerships that that bridge the gap um and ideally the the concept is what we're talking about mm-hmm. you're not the only person doing what you do. Mm-hmm. fill in a blank whatever that is. There are people who are interested in or actually actively doing what you you claim you're the only mm-hmm. person doing or you're the only person that cares about it. And this year's conference is intended to be that expose of those groups who are doing X, Y and Z and to hear those those groups present to hear funders talk about the necessity of of partnerships and strategic relationships as they continue to support the community through their giving and to hear a couple of keynotes on how to market, on how to leverage uh, those partnerships, and then a, a case study. I mean, that's pretty much the agenda. And I, I think for me, hearing you talk about filling the gap, we mentioned a couple of uh, organizations that, in the city who are doing those things. And then you talk about the fact that if you combined efforts, you can serve so many people more people yeah. to me that is in response to er- the other three things you mentioned like resources that's how you leverage resources resources is not just money mm-hmm. resources maybe other people's money or other people's assets yeah. uh staying in your lane knowing what you're really good at mm-hmm. and stop trying to recreate the wheel or jump in someone else's lane and then lastly leverage your network and i think your network is not just people who are in your phone right it's not just people who are in your email either your network or people who exist that you haven't reached out to who are doing things similar to what you got going on
1: yeah one thing I've learned is you know Hartford's a very open community you know like there there is nobody I've ever reached out to that won't grab a cup of coffee with you or won't have a conversation with you no matter how high up they may be in an organization and I think it's Having the confidence to just reach out and ask, you know, even if you get 30 minutes of their time and you never talk to them again or you don't talk to them for a few years until, you know, you, you need them or, or want to do something with them. I, I think Hartford's a very welcoming uh, place to be and start a venture and people are, are are willing to teach it and, uh, you know, collaborate and work together.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, share with us more about Section Seven Housing. Where did that concept come from? And then, I do want to talk a bit about sustainability and the concepts behind that. So, Section Seven Housing. Yeah.
1: So that really came out of a, a huge need of working in, uh, you know, the schools for a while, um, and just being a part of the community and, and seeing a lot of, uh, you know, transient nature. You know, families and kids that we were working with. Bouncing house to house, living in terrible, you know, conditions, uh, and wanting to help solve that, you know, one of that being one of the problems we we solve, um, but without necessarily having state and federal HUD Section Eight grants, how how can you pivot to to solve it? And you know, we've uniquely created a model that is is able to do that by you know, leveraging kind of mixed income, uh, you know, housing to give incredible quality and employment to individuals uh, that live in the properties um, on top of, you know, being able to welcome people in Hartford and meet people in the community. So, you know, one of our, our goals was to change the misconception that people have uh, when they're coming to Hartford. You know, you you hear, oh, Hartford's such a bad place. You know, all of our properties are in Asylum Hill. And so we have individuals who are working at the corporations downtown or come in for conferences in the hospitals who are staying in these communities and are being welcomed and, you know, eating at the same dinner table as people from the north end of it, environment um, and a welcoming environment. So, being able to change the the perception of Hartford, providing uh, affordable housing, and um, also improving historic blighted properties is you know some of the things that we've been able to tackle.
0: So why, how did you guys arrive at the decision to become sustainable in terms of your revenue and sustaining the uh, the history? You of just got to be, you know,
1: it's especially when it's such big assets like. And you're you're putting a lot of personal money on the line. It, you have to figure out that sustainability, especially when you know we we've had Hartford Foundation for Public Giving walk through the properties and pitch the model, and you know the grant makers aren't always looking to to fund new and innovative ideas. So you have that's to true. just create something sustainable. That's true. And uh, you know that's what it what it comes down to is uh, just knowing the impact you're having and being able and knowing that sustainability is the only option if you want to continue having that impact.
0: Yeah. So the green book over my shoulder, the sustainable uh, book was written because of what you just shared. And the, the genesis of the book begins with the idea that traditional revenue sources that nonprofits rely upon grant making sources or contracts really, they're kind of drying up for a number of reasons. One, the increasing number of nonprofits in the community. You're right. We need more mm-hmm. who are serving the community, but that also creates uh, uh, more people in the sandbox, but the sandbox is not getting bigger. Yeah. Um, then two, funders are saying, well, look, if, if Rise Up does this and, and ABC organization does this and you guys serve the same you know group of people, you guys might as well work together and let's just you know split the grant between the two of you guys versus years ago, they would just give the whole thing to you. Yeah. And I think that 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 scenario has created the necessity for nonprofits to become sustainable. What we're saying in the book is, you know, sustainability has everything to do with your ability to earn revenue. Six mm-hmm. percent of a nonprofit's typical revenue budget comes from um, uh, events, uh, cupcake sales, car washes, mm-hmm. like the little off the side projects. You can interpret that data two ways. One, to say, yeah we are not going to put enough effort into those things because it's whatever Mm
1: -hmm.
0: or two, we're going to grow that 6% to like 10, 15, 20% Mm -hmm. to other revenue sources. That includes rent. That includes selling a service that includes, uh, any other investments the nonprofit makes, and yes, nonprofits can make those investments because the nonprofit has the capacity to generate a, a profit, but the profits come back to the nonprofit. So, you know, when you say nonprofits have to become sustainable for a startup, is it too when is is it too early to think that? far down the road about sustainability or should a not should a startup nonprofit literally just do 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 and go 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 until it can't anymore and then begin thinking
1: about sustainability you No know, so I I kinda started uh with the traditional well I just started, you know, before there was even a, a grant in the bank to to start, you know, working in education. Um but uh, i i would argue that should be up front you know mm-hmm. you should that should be in the dna of of the organization because it, it creates that revenue source and it creates other opportunities for the people you're serving right so um, at changarosa for example the it's was part of the bears restaurant group in union station um, the murals inside changarosa and even the hardwood floors inside changarosa Candy Vision was paid to help provide the employment and the staff to help refinish those floors and do the actual some labor inside. And Hartford Murals was paid to help organize uh, all the muraling inside uh, Changarosa. And that was all done at at a cost. You know, this wasn't a a nonprofit working with another nonprofit or a donation to a nonprofit. This was, we're going to provide you work And now, this work is going to pay local artists. It's going to pay, you know, part of our our trade handyman training program, uh, these individuals. And it's also going to leave money back in the account for the nonprofit organization to be sustainable and pay its bills um, without having to write a single grant (laughs) proposal to Aetna or Travelers or, or any of those organizations. So, if I had that mindset, you know, Back in two thousand and twelve, when I first started we we may be much further along in the development of of some of these programs so
0: someone may be asking right now, what earned revenue strategy should I deploy from my nonprofit from my special
1: project I, I think it depends on what what you're ser- how you're serving the community you know I think every every lever can be different, so like our our big focus was education and What are you going to do after high school and so a a very good fit is you know handy handiwork and developing a trade that can create a sustainable life for yourself so you know that obviously made a lot of sense for us um and then the the artwork component um we have a big community service where we want to leave the community better than than it was before we came and we think creating artwork in that in the community is what can do it so that that's kind of where how we've landed at some of our sustainable revenue sources, but I think everything it, it's all dependent upon what what you're doing and and how you you want to go about doing it
0: so let me let me drop some advice for those of you listening one of the things you said uh when we were talking about strategies for launching an adventure a venture was to stay in your lane and in the book sustainable, I write that nonprofits have gotten in trouble engaging in fundraising activities that are so outside of the core competency mm-hmm. of the group, right? So it's easy to say, hey, let's go do a, a car wash.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, yeah, anybody can do that. But, like, if you've ever done it, it's really annoying to get cars to stop and pull in yeah, and yeah. you're the weird person on the corner with a weird sign mm-hmm. that says, hey, come get a car wash. And I'm the driver with no cash looking at you like, nah, I don't got yeah, no money yeah. to pay anyway. And there are nonprofits that have started businesses where no one on staff has had any experience doing that business. Mm -hmm. I would suggest that any nonprofit starting a for-profit business or venture should start a venture it has a core competency in. Or hire a professional. That's it. Yeah. And it is experience, It is expensive hiring a professional in certain arenas. But I'm going to give one example, and this goes back to the Section 7. I'm a real estate guy. I love mm-hmm. it through and through. Had a small business in Philadelphia uh, around real estate. It's one of the most affordable uh, methods of starting a business and hiring a professional. One of the things I, I struggled hearing nonprofits talk about over the years was – I don't want to be a landlord. I don't Mm. want to get the calls at night. I mean, that's not even realistic. As someone who has owned multiple properties, I've never gotten those calls. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've learned early in my investment career was after my wife and I got tired of just landlording, you know, it wasn't bad. It's just we hired a manager Mm -hmm. and they collect a percentage of your rental income if you buy smart and your, your expenses aren't crazy high it's nothing to pay 6 to 10% of your rental right. revenue to a manager who's responsible for maintaining a rolodex of handy persons got it. companies mm-hmm. who are going to you know respond to physical issues in the building and who's going to fill the calls with the leaky toilet now Again, it's affordable to hire that type of expertise. It does take some sort of skill to buy the right property. Mm-hmm. You and I can talk about that, right? But I think it's an example of ways to leverage your existing resources. I did um, a podcast months ago called Chicken Dinners, and it was intended uh, to kind of talk about this concept yeah. because black churches are known for chicken dinners as fundraisers. Yep. Nobody has a competency in, in in making mass quantities of soul food. <laughs> Like nobody on church staff, no, none of the ushers, yeah. but we do it to pay for a roof or a new boiler. And one of the things I argued in that podcast was instead of having people donate the meat and the candied yams and mm. the sweet potatoes and the mac and cheese and the styrofoam plates and the overly sugary uh, Kool-Aid that was placed in the styrofoam cup <laughs> was to take those dollars invested, add it up for a year, and invest in a local business mm-hmm. that exists in your community. Your barbershops, your car washes, your beauty salons, Mm -hmm. uh, your dry cleaners that may be owned by people that look like you, if you're a minority, or people you just trust in -hmm. your community, that amount of money you invested can turn over so many times and have the desired impact. And if you're in a youth development, as you are, you can put so many young people to work by investing those dollars.
1: I I think the nonprofit industry, it's... I mean, let's let's be straight. You know, it, a lot of the nonprofit industry is not even run by people in or from the the community. Yeah. You know, yeah. so they're they're not necessarily thinking about how we can make, you know, my salary turn over <laughs> over and over in the community. Yeah. Um, but I I think you're that's that's such a val- a valid point that the industry itself is just not thinking about and. It, it almost it's it's risky, you know. They see it as risk, even though there's you know less risk in that than, you know, planning on uh, you know chicken dinners every every uh, every night. So, um, I, it's something that we see eye to eye on, you know. And uh, I think I I would Im- implore other other nonprofits to to try and think a little bit uh, more innovative and and look. There's a reason why. Uh, you know, investment firms last and are sustainable and could be nimble. Even when there's downs, you know, there's there's probably a lot more nonprofits that were hurt because of the, the financial crash than actual investors that were out there because you diversify, you know, you, you make sure you hedge your, your bets and you have a sustainable, you know, even if your housing value drops down to, to a half of what it is you still have monthly cash flow coming in that's going to be the same rate it was before the value of the house and guess what that that value of the property is going to bounce back in a couple years so it's um it's just a different different way of thinking that i i think uh more organizations should uh take advantage of if bears which for those of you who aren't local here it's a
0: a greater Hartford Mm -hmm. barbecue restaurant. Not saying that they're going to do this. This is Mm -hmm. completely fictitious, so don't get on me. But if Bears decided to publicly announce that we are looking to open up five more locations and Mm -hmm. we're taking on cash investors local to Hartford, how many of
1: those investors do you think would be nonprofits? probably none uh there may be a a couple that have maybe a financial advisor who's managing their endowment that may think about it but they wouldn't think about it from the lens of oh wow this could provide jobs to my clients that i'm
0: you just stole my thunder you know (laughs) because everybody local knows that bears is a second chance employer yeah and they stay busy so they're not going out of business Mm -hmm. god forbid right let's you know wish blessings upon bears for what they do uh, but they, they stay busy in all the locations that they have. They hire people who are second chance or this is their first job and mm-hmm. their, their owners, the bear owners of bears are pretty vocal about that. And if they decided to open up five more locations and you're a nonprofit, a startup even, mm-hmm. and all you have is, uh, let's say, a couple thousand dollars to invest in a project, your passion project. And let's say it's youth. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's homeless youth. Let's say it's victims of domestic violence, sexual violence, whatever your passion is, mm-hmm. and you have a couple a couple thousand dollars. In my mind, I think it's hard for startup nonprofits to have this conversation to even consider that's the first step I should take, because that's not what's widely talked about mm-hmm. as the logical step a nonprofit takes in its trajectory of life. Mm-hmm. What what we're saying for those who are watching is perhaps. If you're starting out, it might be a good idea to look at a safe business mm-hmm. in the community that can have a positive impact on your client base and invest in that business. Because the return is is going to be what it is, yep. whatever the terms are. And the outcomes to say that, you know what, before you get placed in bears, I'm going to put you through the Rise Up University for Workforce Readiness. Yeah. And we're going to put you through our rotational program of the mural arts program, Handy Vision, Mama J's and Mm -hmm. et cetera. And then we're going to send you to bears to make more than minimum wage. I believe Mm -hmm. that's what they offer. And not only do I have the outcomes, as you talked about, as a nonprofit starting out Mm -hmm. small, but my investment towards my long term sustainability is growing because I have personal young people, adults that I've invested in working there, mm-hmm. providing quality service, making quality meat and sides, providing excellent customer service who are perpetuating mm-hmm. this brand of bears, which means perpetuating the brand that I've invested in. Mm-hmm. And as you talked about, that leads to sustainability.
1: Yeah. But I, I think one of the the challenges just comes back to like the structure of the industry. You know, if you think about how many Nonprofits are reliant on state or federal money. Yeah. Like, there's so many restrictions on that. You know, you yeah. have to count how many you know pencils you buy to to send back to yeah. them. Um, and I think there's so much of that reliance on you know a lot of these nonprofits are just extensions of the government, like government services almost. That it, it makes that a little bit challenging, but it it creates a huge opportunity for you know, individuals like us who are going out and trying to start something new, you know, and I, I know you had Abdul on on here uh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago. And if you look at all the initiatives he has, uh, you know, whether it's outside of my people, uh, the actual clinical services he's providing, which is a service, you know, um, all the other work he's doing, it's under like a sustainable model, like yeah. He's bringing, you know, men together and they're doing, you know, empowerment work. But it's a sustainable model because they're going on trips and people have to pay to, to go on those trips. If you look at Ice Cream for a Dream, well, he does a lot of free work with that. Corporations will, you know, sponsor. pay him. Oh, yeah. You're a your sponsor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and but like travelers will, yeah. will pay to have him come and give ice cream to their employees, you know, you know have them tell their dreams. So he can then do it for free for for the community, mm-hmm. um, and and so I think it's it leaves a huge opportunity for ind- other individuals outside of kind of the the old kind of industry to define a, a new industry. And I look at Uber, you know, like the taxi industry, fifteen twenty years ago, people say is untouchable, you know. Um, because of a lot of the government regulations and all of that, but you have some innovative folks who you know come to the table and completely change it all. And there's you know talk about someone coming to the table and say, "Oh, no one else is doing this." Look at how many people are doing ride sharing. You know, Uber is not the the mastermind behind ride sharing. They've just done it the best and have have had the most investment, but it's not their idea like this idea of ride sharing they've just done it the best and there's other platforms out there that you know do it well too so yeah
0: i mean and you're so right and i would say that projects like section seven um you can replace bears with section seven mm-hmm. and let's say you guys open up shares yeah to invest which i don't know if you guys are doing that but you know, let us know. Yeah. yeah but <laughs> if, if that is a public announcement and you have a, a startup nonprofit that's struggling to buy crayons for kids mm-hmm. because you just you just want to buy crayons for kids every school year. Yeah. And you need money outside of your own salary. You might want to take the little money you raised, invest it in the math.